1: Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools is here every Saturday at noon to defend and to promote public education. When we promote public education, we're actually thinking of that education. It's only 150 or so years old in Australia, which came out of the Enlightenment tradition in Europe and Great Britain and elsewhere. But uh, the churches never went away. They'd been in charge of education before that, or the private enterprise, Dame schools and so on. They never went away. They call them independent schools these days, even though in Australia we have um, just so many private schools growing like mushrooms because there's actually money in education these days. There's money in insecure middle-class parents. So they never went away. And uh, those who are in favour of public education have to be aware that if you build up this alternative system by giving it taxpayers' money, then you are fundamentally undermining the whole idea of public education. Now, we've been in trouble because there's been state aid given to private schools since the uh, 1969-72 elections. But... um, In America they've been relatively free because the Supreme Court there has upheld the wall of separation between church and state. But we have a press release on our website this week, uh, www.adogs.info, which is about Trump, DeVos and the Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch, who's just been appointed and the question in america on a lot of people's minds is will they demolish the wall of separation of church and state in america and in so doing undermine their public education system so today uh, i'll be spending quite a bit of time in america because uh when america coughs then everybody else gets the flu but in the in the in the case of education Australia's got the flu and America's starting to cough. But on April the 19th, 2017, the court heard arguments in a very important case. It's called Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia versus Coma. And the decision could deeply erode the principle of church-state separation and a shield which has, in America, protected public education. Now, if this Trinity... Lutheran uh, case, if they have a win, Trinity Lutheran, then state and local governments throughout America will be required to give taxpayer funds to churches, synagogues and mosques. And that's why Americans United, along with other religious and civil rights organisations, submitted a friend of the court brief. In other words, they've got in as a friend of the court into the case. On April the 13th, however... The Missouri's governor announced that he'll give taxpayer funding to churches in that state anyway, which was exactly what Trinity Lutheran asked for its lawsuit. Because the governor's provided the remedy that the church requested, the case should end, but it's not. Because there's, nothing in, there's no longer anything to ask the Supreme Court. But the problem is that on April the 18th, Americans United asked the Supreme Court to dismiss the case But it wasn't dismissed. It went ahead and the result could open the gates to state aid for vouchers. Now, how can it do this? What are the facts of this case? The Trinity Lutheran Church sought money from the Missouri State Legislature Supreme Court to resurface its playground. State officials denied the church's application for funding because the state's constitution's no-aid provision ensures that taxpayer dollars do not fund churches. The church then claimed that this provision violates the United States Constitution because the no-aid provisions, some of which have existed for a century or two, were designed to protect religious freedom because religion and belief are stronger without government support. Now, the um, Americans United for Separation of Church and State group, because I've got this off their website, they submitted the Friend of the Court brief to explain how important these long-standing provisions in the Constitution, and now Section 116 is actually um, based upon this, how important they are and to defend the principle of church-state separation. But there has been continual pressure in America in the last 20 years on the Supreme Court to open the floodgates of state aid to religious organisations and schools. But to date, the erosion of the principle of separation of religion and the state has been minimal. Scalia and others on the Supreme Court who were conservatives and uh, of Roman Catholic persuasion, they were quite happy to allow it. But on the whole, the numbers of the court have held. But now that Gorsuch is there, there's a problem. America has not yet followed Australia to the extraordinary position that we are in today. So what is the history of the voucher system in America? We've actually got it here, uh, but it's under another name, It's um, under the uh, grants that each child gets uh, for a private school education. But 20 years ago, Betsy DeVos and her husband were the primary funders of an effort to strip the Michigan Constitution's no aid clause, no aid to religious clause, the provision that ensures that the government doesn't funnel taxpayer dollars to religious institutions, including private religious schools. Now, what was their goal? Their goal was to remove the constitutional barrier to implementation of a private school voucher program Their efforts failed miserably when in November 2000, 69% of the voters of Michigan chose to keep the state's religious freedom protections in place, and the people of Michigan knew that freedom of belief for taxpayers and freedom for faith communities was actually at stake. But in the 1999 case, Zillman v Simmons-Harris, the United States Supreme Court held that an, an Ohio private school voucher program didn't violate the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. However, because the constitutions in three quarters of the states have no aid provisions, they always provide another avenue, apart from the Supreme Court, to challenge voucher programs that fund religious schools. In fact, Americans United has successfully challenged voucher programs in Colorado and Florida using those states' no aid clauses. So that's been the situation in the United States. It's very much a holding the line against uh, a Supreme Court that will be against the no state aid position. In Australia, of course, we had a high court that was 6-1 in favour of religious schools because most of the judges had gone there to religious schools. But what will happen if there's a broad decision in this Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia versus Coma case? It's D-Day legally in America. Thanks to President Donald Trump, Betsy DeVos can now push school vouchers from her helm as the Secretary of Education. And also thanks to Trump, the newly sworn-in Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch could be part of handing DeVos the gift she tried to buy nearly two decades ago. A broad decision in Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia versus Coma could undermine the state no-aid clauses across the whole country, allowing private school vouchers in Michigan and other states as well. So if Trinity Lutheran wins, the state and the local governments could be required federally by the federal government to give taxpayer-funded grants to houses of worship and religious schools. And if the decision's broad, it could also mean that the state no-aid state no provisions could can no longer be interpreted to ensure that taxpayer dollars do not fund religious schools through private school vouchers. Uh, so the Supreme Court is now in danger of putting Americans and public schools in America and private schools in America on the same footing as we actually have in Australia. But as the dogs, we have always argued, authentic faith, because the dogs are not against religious faith and neither Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Freedom of conscience is a very basic freedom. But authentic faith does not require taxpayers' assistance. So the dogs recommend the following article, which is also from Americans United for Separation of Church and State, It was written on April the 19th, 2017 by Bill Melford uh, in another group, on another group's website called Wall of Separation. And this is what he said. This is his story. And I think that there's actually quite a few Christian people anyway in Australia who would think this way. When he was in a seminary in Wilmore, Kansas, he served as a part-time missions pastor at a United Methodist Church in the town the church was going through some tra- tra- transitions and was trying to figure out a vision for the coming months and years. So the church had long been focused on caring for its own members through discipleship and preaching, but the members wanted to be more connected with their community, particularly with yet those who had yet to venture inside their doors. So a small group began to find opportunities to actually serve the community of Wilmore and nearby lexicons. They served meals in the homeless shelter and built friendships with the men who lived on the streets. They raised support for refugees who were being welcomed from the Democratic Republic of the Congo and they shared meals and necessary resources for them to begin their lives anew. And they poured themselves into the emergency relief ministry that helped poor people who lived day to day and were in need of basic services. Their year-long service culminated with a Thanksgiving celebration with the community, cooking enough turkey and stuffing, cranberry sauce, green bean casserole and apple pie for over 250 people. And listeners, this is actually going on here in Australia too with some uh, religious groups. There's no question about it. And they are actually putting their dollars on the line to help their communities. Now, it was an amazing night. Uh, that was um, the Thanksgiving service, of shared food, shared conversations and shared laughter. The people in the church were so moved by the experience, something they'd never done before, that missions became one of the largest line items in their budget. Now, this writer is sharing it with uh, his readers to make this point. Serving the community required a tremendous amount of time, energy and yes, money but not one of them ever thought of going to taxpayers for any of that funding. That's actually not what Christianity is about. If they had, they would have missed out on the passionate journey of pouring themselves out in service to the friends and neighbours. All of the work that all of these ministry actions necessitated were steps towards finding their own vision, their own calling, their own joy. And they didn't want to lose any of that simply for the... The ease of gaining outside resourcing. They were mutually transformed. They were helping people, and the people, in their own way, were helping them with their um, experiences together, as they sought to improve the welfare of those around them. So this is why this writer is stunned that the Trinity Lutheran Church in Columbia is going to such lengths to ensure that it can apply for government funding for the playground of its religious preschool. The Church is pursuing the case all the way to the United States Supreme Court where it was being argued on the 19th of April. And the Church's demands were in opposition with Missouri's constitution which forbids taxpayer money from going to houses of worship. And this writer was with the State on this one. Uh, He goes on, It's great that Trinity Lutheran wants to provide services for the community. He believes that the facilities of houses of worship should be more utilised by the communities. But he would encourage his sisters and brothers at Trinity Lutheran to remember that service to the community is not something we should demand of others to provide. Serving the community is a joy that should be incumbent on people of faith to do without any need for outside compensation. It had reminded him of the kind of worship that God desired from God's people in Isaiah 58. Now this is a Jewish as well as a Christian Christian. Um, Idea, And you could well find that a lot of the Jewish people in Melbourne would be looking at a Isaiah 58. I remember when I was at university, I had a Jewish friend who referred me to it and said that the Jewish people thought uh, that serving communities, mainly their own communities, was actually very, very important in their belief system. Now, in Isaiah 58, God describes the kind of worship that is not pleasing is worship done while there's quarrelling or in the midst of oppression of the poor or to make themselves people make people feel better? In I'll repeat that because I think that a lot of people who are demanding at this very moment More and more money for our very wealthy religious schools, if they call themselves religious and God-fearing and Christian, should actually go and read Isaiah 58. God describes the kind of worship there that's not pleasing. It is worship done when there's quarrelling in the church or in the midst of oppression of the poor or to make themselves feel better. So what does God think that proper worship is? And I'm reading here from Isaiah, and I'm not apologising, even though I'm on 3CR, I'm reading from Isaiah, which is a book of the New Testament of the Bible. And this is what Isaiah says that God says. Is this not the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? So following the kind of worship that God desires in Isaiah is the promise that God gives. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. So um, that's a very powerful passage. God's not interested in people who go to church to feel good uh, while the poor are oppressed around them. If you put it into our own context, God's not happy with people that go to church to feel good while there are people in concentration camps on manis who are pleading for our help. So this man doesn't want to emphasise that he's not advocating for, nor does he believe that Scripture's promising a transactional form of missional engagement. For serious believers, there's nothing formulaic about it the interaction with the Almighty, he says. He believes that regardless of verse 8 of Isaiah, the worship and the missional engagement must be centred around redemptively utilising our resources to meet the needs of others through actions of justice and mercy. And Christians, and I'm sure too Jewish and other people, do this Remembering, of course, that um, a lot of the New Testament is also in the Quran, people help other people and they can be humanitarians too, simply and solely because that's what God desires. And he says that like the church that he belongs to, uh, they should not be asking for extra money to do it from the state. So I thought you'd be interested in that because it's not every Christian that is going cap in hand to the government to demand resources to do the job that they think God thinks they should be doing. So um, that's enough for me for the moment. Let's have some music and then I'm sure that Robert's got quite a lot to say.
2: Thanks very much. We've been listening to Grieg. Um, yeah, that's his piano concerto um, in A minor. It's yeah, just the beginning of it. It goes for a fair bit longer, but we thought we'd just like a taste of it to calm you down after after getting riled up by what Jean has to say and then probably indeed by what I'm about to say as well because we are the defenders of government schools. We defend government schools because they need defending because they are being insidiously attacked and have been insidiously attacked for generation upon generation um, by a number of forces. Um, In America, of course, they have problems, um, which they're sort of borrowing from us. you you think people certainly on the West Coast could look over to Australia and go, oh, well, let's not do what they're doing in Australia. But unfortunately, that's what they seem to be doing. Um, I'm going to travel again because here on The Dogs, we do do news reviews and interviews from around the world. And um, in England at the moment, there is an election um, being called by the... Indigenous Prime Minister and the Indigenous Party, the Tories, um, over there in the UK, and um, they're fighting against a bloke called Jeremy Corbyn, um, who's the leader of the Labour Party. Now, a lot of people who are off a left wing bent, if wings mean anything anymore these days, um, kind of like Corbyn. Uh, he's he's you know, pretty much an old-fashioned socialist. But um, when you examine his education policies, it gets a little bit more complicated, um, and I'm not going to examine um, the Labor Party of England's um, uh, education policy in detail, but there is some very, very interesting and virulent stuff coming out of the education debate in the UK at the moment. And one of the people who's writing about this is a fellow called Tim Knott in The Guardian. Um, his view, um, functionally, of the way education should be organised is um, a little bit further advanced than even the dogs, I would have to say. The basic principle of what he suggests is that private schools should be banned and get rid of a lot of them like they do in Finland. And here at the Dogs, we don't say that. We say you can have a, set up a private institution that teaches the Australian curriculum. Um, you can do it on religious principles if you like, as long as you teach what's on the Australian curriculum. Um, but here at the Dogs, we say do what you like, but we're not going to pay for it. Um, if you want to separate your children out from the children of Australia... Um, you should pay for that privilege. It shouldn't be subsidised by the taxpayer. Uh, Tim, Tim Lott, of course, thinks that there should be no private schools, and I'll, I'll detail why he thinks that in the context of the current UK election. He says, or he has written um, in an article for The Guardian on Friday the 21st of April 2017, he mentions that he, like a lot of people, is inclined towards equality of opportunity for all children. It's a big statement. It makes sense. He goes on to say that he's also aware that such a a phrase is open to multiple definitions, and with most of them, such a quality verges on the impossible. For instance, we can all hold up our hands in pious disapproval at the unfairness of, let's just say, familial nepotism, such as is seen at the moment um, among Donald Trump's brood. I mean, if you happen to be Donald Trump's daughter, that means you get to be a senior advisor of the most powerful country in the world. That's the only qualification you need. And that's what's commonly termed nepotism. Um, Yet he says, that's fine to complain about that, but for most of us, it's actually not much better. Anyone who's educated or from the middle class background is also operating on a manifestly unequal playing field. Now, this is largely because of the workings of what he calls, and many people call, social capital, of which nepotism is simply an extreme example. At a mundane level... It means that if you're born with parents who are educated and interested in education and connected with professions and happy to use those connections, uh, which you might call cultural nepotism, um, and Mr. Knott himself says he's not innocent of this. Conscience takes a fall when one's own children are involved, he says. And this is something that I I personally often talk about here on the Dogs Program. Um, I often talk about the difference between my child... And the children and the needs of my child are different to the needs of the children in almost every case It's a real thing um, you, you can't just dismiss it and say that people who are trying to do the best for their child are evil and terrible and bad. It's a natural instinct, and that's what people do um, but this kind of inequity this 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 reign of of the my child in in a free market of education. Is actually, very difficult to legislate against. The divide between rich and poor families is growing and it's largely in the current climate inescapable. Now, a new report from the Institute of Public Policy Research, it's a think tank in the UK, shows that the number of internships um, has risen 50% since. 2010. That's a very rapid rise in internships. Now for those of you who actually don't know what an internship because they're not very popular in Australia because they in many ways go directly against the concept of Australia, what what people, oh, I hate to use the phrase, but Australian values. Australian values in, in some sense are still uh, can still be expressed in, in, in some sense as a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. Um, if you're going to do the work then you expect to be paid for it fairly. An internship is, in fact, the opposite of that. An internship is where you do a fair day's work and don't get paid at all um, until someone says, well, you've done enough of this work for free, maybe we might give you a job. I mean, that's what an intern is. They have them in America, they're very popular there, and now in the UK, very popular, and I'm afraid in Australia, they're growing in popularity. Now, to be an intern, to be an intern, to do the work for nothing as a young person to try to break into a workplace, you have to have social capital. You have to have parents who have enough money to allow you to do that. It's kind of like, a, it's kind of like a, the old gap year that they used to have, where you'd travel the world back in the day, but now you have your gap year and, and work for a law firm, or you have your gap year and work as an intern. Now, this concept of the internship, as he mentioned, has risen over 50% in just under seven years in the UK. Now, this this whole process of the internship is a leg up for those who can afford to take low-paid or unpaid positions. If you come from a poor family, you can't take an internship because you have to eat. Now, add in in to this sort of unfairness um, decent housing, good nutrition, and the imparting of confidence and the middle class have a huge advantage when it comes to how well you're likely to succeed in life in a free market. And this is all separate and distinct from even talking about the school you went to or schooling in general. Now there are other um, ineradicable forms of inequality and he goes on to talk about genetic capital for instance such as intelligence is according to some or most indeed scientific sources at least 50% hereditary. It's, it's not all hereditary but there is a her- you know, if if you have smart parents chances are you're going to be smart. doesn't mean you're going to be smart it just means chances are. But You can't necessarily eradicate those sorts of inequity or advantage, but the concept of this social capital, where how much food you get and where you live and who your parents are and how much money they have to put aside so that you can do, for instance, an internship, these things are the most visible forms of inequity. And they are, in some ways, and I agree, a form of of nepotism when it comes to what is fair. Now, he says that these are entrenched... And they're inevitable, which is why he perversely opposes private schools far more than he, um, than, than he opposes grammar schools. Now, grammar schools, we don't necessarily have them here in, in, in Australia, but in England, in theory, grammar schools can be meritocratic. No.
1: Well, we do, ha- we do have um... Um, uh, selective schools which are a version yeah, so, so I mean, schools. to translate
2: it into the Australian context, you talk about selective schools, which you get into on the basis of merit. So, this are, in theory, they're meritocratic. Private schools, however, are not. Um, and it's not that uh, Mr. Mr. Lott um, wishes to take away from privileged children an unfair start. He just wants to take away the only advantage by banning public schools that is purely down, purely down to money and entirely subject to legislation.
1: In England, of course, the uh, really wealthy schools are called public schools, but they're not really public no, at no, all. No, no, no. It's, it's
2: a strange use of the word, isn't it? It, yes. it has historical precedence. Which...
1: Parks was very determined historically in Australia to grab the idea of public in its proper form for state schools. But in England, are you... When they talk about public schools, they're talking about the greater public schools like Eton, Winchester and so on.
2: Mm. Now, Mr Lott suggests, and I agree with him, that private schools add insult to injury. Mm. If you get rid of them, if you just get rid of them so you can't have private education, off you go, get rid of them and shift all the public into a state system, nothing will guarantee the latter's improvement with more certainty. Nothing will guarantee more that those children who are not born to wealthy parents will do better. In fact, it's, you are go- that is going to be an inevitable outcome of closing down all private schools and putting all the children into public schools. But he says, and this is important, the middle-class children, the aspirational types, on aggregate will still come out on top because of their pre-existing advantages, separate to their education. So it's especially egregious that so many people so staunchly oppose the abolition of private schools. Now, grammar schools, he says, in the UK, as envisaged in the 1944 Education Act, which selection is based not solely on tests but also on aptitude and past performance, might be the answer to those who suggest that the abolition of private schools would result in the dumbing down of education as long as there were um, a resource for the clever and motivated rather than the privileged and the tutored. So what he's saying is that, well, OK, if you want to say that certain students are smarter than other students and get held behind by all the poor students who aren't clever, you know, if you want to play those, those segregationalist games, he says, well, grammar schools can fulfil that. If you want to get the cleverest and put them together with the other cleverest, you can still do that within the public school system, which if- is, which we indeed, in Australia, with a selective process we have.
1: It's actually the difference between an aristocratic system, an oligarchic system and a meritocratic system. The grammar schools were always there for those with merit and the public service examinations were introduced in the 19th century because the civil service was full of incompetence and that was introduced by none other than Prince Albert who came from Germany, where you had a meritocracy rather than an aristocracy that was incompetent. Because let's face it, England has had an awful lot of incompetence. Look at all the incompetent generals in both sides, on all sides of Europe during the First World War. But, um, yeah, it's, it, the, what you have in an education system goes back to the kind of society that you want to have, doesn't it?
2: Uh, very much so. It goes back, and I think, Jenny you have a very important point there. It, it depends. It depends on what you want your country and your people getting together. Um, together, you want what you want to, that to look like. People, you can call it society. You can call it community. You can call it what you like. But into the future generations, what do you want the place in which your children live to actually look like? Now. Lot is an interesting... It's a very interesting article, actually, because I don't think it's left-wing or right-wing. In fact, in many ways, he's talking in terms of old-fashioned eugenics. He says that absolutely level playing fields are and always will be a myth. You can't have them. They don't exist. They never will. They never did. There would still be inequality if you ban all private schools, but the inequality would be minimalized. And I think what he's saying is that the one place... If you do not have a particular advantage because of money as part of your education system, then you can minimalise the inequality as part of the system. They'll still go home to wealthy parents who will get them them jobs in the law firms in which they work and all that sort of stuff. You you can't stop parents doing those things. Um, And perhaps you shouldn't want to. I don't know. I don't have an opinion about that. Perhaps listeners can call up and perhaps listeners can contact the station and let me know what their opinions might be. But he says, this is all doable. You can just take all the money away from private schools. You just do it. It's doable and it's practical as well. Absolutely practical. He says that it appears impossible to do it politically. The fact that Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labor Party in the UK, is suggesting changes to private school VAT, that is to tax them, is a step in the right direction. A few steps more in that direction and he might establish a policy that would make um, me vote for him. And this this person I don't think is very left-wing at all. But, he says, I'll take a state-educated guess that that's not going to happen with Jeremy Corbyn. There are too many people with too many fingers in the private schooling pie, and amongst those people are a fair number of Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet. Because when those who stand against inequality simultaneously take advantage of it, their motivation is sorely undermined whether or not it would be to vote for a winner. Such is the insidiousness of educational inequality. So long as it works from the policymakers themselves, it has no real chance of reform. And those responsible can tell themselves that it's for the children's sake.
1: Historically, you have um, big changes when you have a war and then you have a revolution, uh, a quiet revolution uh, in uh, 1944, you mentioned the Education Act of England. England discovered that large numbers of its soldiers and others were not properly educated and they better do something about it. So there was an act and, yes, they did build up the grammar schools to at least get the meritocratic children. But... Um, well, we'll see. It looks as if Mr. Turnbull and Mr. Trump could well be getting us into some trouble where it sometimes sometime soon, so they might actually decide that a lot of our children are not being well enough educated to be cannon fodder. I'm sorry to sound so dismal about this, but um it has happened before, and I think on ANzac Day, which has um, been this week, we should remember that our soldiers came home from the front, particularly up in New Guinea and elsewhere, and they demanded that the universities be open to them. And they were open to them. And because the universities were opened in 1945 in Australia, so many of the um, current generation of older people like myself got an education. It would not have been possible before the Second World War. So never despair. These things have happened. And they can happen again. And uh, the battle is worth fighting.
2: Yes, well, in the historical context, Gina is in fact exactly right. But as, Mr. Um, as, uh, as, as this author points out quite rightly, he says that things politically in the, in the UK at the moment are not likely to change. And he says that the factors behind this lack of change are understandable. In fact, it might even be forgivable, but it must be recognised that currently, in certain, certainly in terms of Gerry Corbyn, the whole process of talking about education funding for private schools is a complete cop-out. Uh, it's very disappointing.
1: Well, it's the same with Tanya Plibersek here in Australia, isn't it?
2: Very much so, and we'll talk more about that after, I think, a little bit more Greg. back to the dogs program i was going to leave the royal danish philharmonia orchestra there um in the middle of his Pierre gwint suite again by Grieg. um exciting i, I like to think of Grieg uh, Grieg as wagner light but um that's just a kind of little in joke between myself gene hopefully some of the audience sorry about that terrible having injokes jokes on the radio oh,
1: i'm not quite sure i like wagner but still I, 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 I never implied that you did gene never
2: implied that you did Um, We've been talking about what's going on in the United States and indeed in the United Kingdom in the program today and I think it's about time we come back home because at the moment in Australia we're at an impasse um, when it comes to education funding. The state education ministers and the federal education minister have sat down and had two big long chats and they can't agree on anything. At the moment, if you're a principal in a school at the moment in in Australia, you've got problems. You have no idea how much money you're getting next year. You don't know if it's more, if it's less, if it's the same. And you've got to make a budget. You've got teachers to pay. You've got parents to keep happy. You've got children to educate um, if you're in a state school. If you're in a private school, you might have some children to educate, but that would be secondary to um, making sure that your position in the marketplace is the most effective and reasonable and efficient. But certainly in terms of state schools, as a principal, you've got problems because you've got kids to teach and you don't know how much money you're going to have. Now, the federal budget's coming up. Um, and we need to discuss this in detail because at the moment this whole debate is just actually a bit of a debacle because there are serious and significant problems in both primary and secondary education funding levels in Australia at the moment. Everyone agrees there's massive problems. Everyone agrees that money is being spent where it shouldn't be spent, but no one can do anything. Now, in the UK, they've got an election coming up and they can talk about compromises and cop-outs. Here in Australia, we're now at the coalface. We're a bit further down the track and we've got significant problems because schools need certainty, according to Eric Bagshaw in an article in The Age on um, April the 24th. He says they need it not just for pencils and paper, um, they need it for speech therapists and school counsellors and teachers' assistants, where every bit of money could make a difference to a student's life. And yet, here we are, in Australia, hurtling towards the budget in May, with no certainty in sight. Now, there will be multi-billion dollar numbers in the May budget figures, but it will be marked, inverted commas, indicative only. The delayed negotiations between the States and the Federal Government will now be held in June, after the budget. And it's clear funding is not going to get any significantly bigger. Now at the moment, everyone's still wandering and dancing around on, on on the animated corpse of Gonski, which is gone, as a platform for more money. But the government agrees; it's dead. Everyone actually agrees it's dead. They're just using it as you know something, to, a word to put up in front. It's all right, Gonski. It's all right. Leave us alone, Gonski.
1: Well, now, at least with Gonski, you might just have the idea, the idea of disadvantaged children yeah. somewhere in the background. And
2: then attempting, which is an idea, to redistribute education funding perhaps where it's more needed. Now, if a compromise must be reached, then there is one that everyone should agree on. There are some private schools that are publicly overfunded. Now, that fact is agreed by everyone. Nobody disagrees with, 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 perhaps with the exception of the um, uh, Independent Schools Principals Association and, and perhaps with the exception of... Um, uh, Michelle Green. Michelle Green. But everyone else who, doesn't have, who isn't paid to be a lobbyist for private schools oh, agrees it's... that this is the case.
1: Oh, and of course Stephen Elder. You mustn't forget Stephen oh, yeah. Elder from oh, the Catholic I'm... Education Office.
2: Oh, I wish I could, but anyway. Look, imagine if the same formula was applied to hospitals as it is to schools. That is to say, in Sydney, the North Shore private could receive millions of public dollars on top of its entitlements to settle patients into private suites, while the Blacktown Hospital is treating its patients in the hallway. Fortunately, health funding has its hurdles, but that's not how hospitals are funded, but it is how schools are funded. Which is why the Federal Education Minister, Mr Birmingham, has finally had the chutzpah to claim that some private schools were overfunded in September. And he was right. So distorted has the model become that some have banked surpluses of up to eight million dollars a year, and ploughed them into next year's facilities.
1: Wasn't oh, disgusting. Yeah, they disgusting. Now,
2: private schools will tell you um, that public money is never spent on infrastructure. But
1: of course, it is. Any
2: economist, actually, he says, any economist. I'd say any bookkeeper will tell you. you. Don't have to be an economist worth their pay would tell you that saving in one part of the book is a bonus in another. Hello, school orchestra pits and swimming pools with Olympic timers. Now, he's not actually being facetious about that. <laughs> he's not being facetious about Olympic swimming pools with Olympic timers and orchestra pits for for, for the music department in private schools. He's not joking. That's, that's what's happening. Because that's part of a private school's marketing shtick. And this is all happening... where where, where school empire building is taken on with the gusto of an arms race. And we're now in a situation where Labor, the party of public education, spent months undecided over the fate of overfunded private schools because of one of the most short-sighted promises Julia Gillard ever made. That was, and I quote her when she said, no school will be worse off. I bet the old boys were thanking their lucky ties. Terrified of how aspiring private school parents might vote, the Labour Party politicked itself into paralysis after Birmingham suggested some some schools might be getting more than they were entitled to last year. And we lambasted Plibersek when she did this. It was a disgusting thing she did. And it didn't even make political sense. Almost every one of the most overfunded private schools in, is in a safe Liberal seat. And the few that aren't are in safe Labor hands. Melbourne Grammar is in the seat of Higgins, held by Liberals since 1975. It stands to lose $2 million a year if its overfunding is taken away from it. But it will still get more than $5 million in taxpayers' money in the year. And it doesn't need that either, I would suggest. But even if you take its overfunding away, it still gets money from the government. That's Melbourne Grammar. Loretto Curabilli... And Monte, and, and, and Monte in North Sydney would lose $5 million a year. But that seat's not going to switch to Labor <laughs> on a margin of 15%, and the list goes on. It's a no-loss game for Labor to explicitly back taking funds away from the schools at the top of the list in the name of levelling the playing field.
1: Well, they're still going along with that strange myth that that's why Latham lost the 2004 election, These these schools. He didn't. He would have gained a lot of votes if they'd stuck with it, taking money away from the wealthy schools. It was the loggers down in Tasmania that lost him the election.
2: Well, it's over a decade now, and, yes. you, and you think they would have forgotten. Look, what Eric is saying is that it won't lose any votes, the Labor Party, won't lose any votes it wasn't going to lose anyway. Yeah. Better still, for the sake of improved policy, the Coalition isn't likely to lose the seats which is held for most of the last century. So what Eric's saying is that no political party loses. If you take money away from the rich private schools, they're not going to vote Labor. And if you take money away from rich private schools, um, Labor Party voters aren't going to vote Liberal. So it's a bipartisan win, right? Not as Labor sees it. Shadow Education spokesperson Tanya Plibersek has dismissed the concerns about a very small number of schools and a, quote, drop in the bucket of the extra money required compared to the $30 billion she claims is missing from the education to budget. Well, I suppose compared to $30 billion, uh, Plibersek is right, but the symbolism would at least push the funding equity debate forward. Now, this month, more recently, she said she'd be happy to slow the growth of funding for overfunded schools, meaning many would still be, guess what, overfunded, because everyone agrees they're overfunded. Like, this isn't the debate. No-one's talking about whether they're overfunded. They're just talking about whether they're going to take the overfunding away. It's ridiculous. Sorry, I I just find it mad. Now, adding to the uncertainty, Federal Education Minister Birmingham has yet to clarify if schools will be hit with a cut or a funding slowdown, while thousands of students are losing out on more equitable pieces of the pie. Now, this is where Trevor Cobourg comes in. He says the sheer scale of avarice is something to behold. That's what Trevor Cobalt says. Who was actually a former Productivity Commission economist?
1: I'm very interested that he says this because this has been the dog's experience and the experience of the teacher unions since the 1970s, 60s, 70s. The sheer avarice is something to behold. And the tragedy is that this sheer avarice goes along with pretensions to some kind of Christian uh, religious belief, uh, which is completely contrary to what they should be standing for. Sheer avarice, yes. Mm. puts it very well.
2: Based on his figures, and and we do have a great deal of time for Trevor Cobalt's figures, based on his figures, a needs-based redistribution that still keeps giving money to private schools would shift $5.6 billion a year from kids that don't need it to kids that do. $5.6 billion. That's just dealing with the overfunding. I'm not talking about closing private schools or anything like this. This is just what everyone agrees is overfunding.
1: It had been putting them back to about the 19, early 1970s and even the, the 1980s. The real rot started in with... Howard in the 1990s, when they just gave up on needs policies altogether and just poured the money into the private sector and its expansion.
2: Now, defending taxpayer dollars flowing to schools that have already, some, some of them, more than 250% of the standard funding per student and demanding an extra public injection is absurd. It, it, would, it would be, even if there was a bigger pie to redistribute. Now, that's not what Gonski wanted, or not, or not what Gonski's corpse wanted, and it's not what Labor really wants when they talk about the true needs-based funding system. The, coaliti- the Coalition is actually on onto, onto a policy and political win- winner at the moment when it starts to talk about taking away overfunding. It should prosecute its case more vigorously if the Labor Party is just going to completely vacate the field. I agree. The dog's position is actually a political winner. The Overton window has shifted so far. What is possible politically has shifted so far in the last, I don't know, five years that to talk about doing this and to actually do it is a political winner for the Liberal Party Mm. because the Plibersec has just vacated the field. The Labor Party is nowhere, nowhere to be seen on education.
1: This is why people are leaving and going either to the Greens or in the case of uh, Conservatives over to... um over to the One Nation party, but the actual uh, primary vote of both parties is plummeting Well, to conclude,
2: I mean, and to any politician who's out there, I don't care what stripe you are, you can be One Nation, you can be Labor, Liberal or Calathumpian or Green. I don't care. There are two things that the Australian population will vote for. One, state education. You put money into it, you'll get votes. Two, don't privatise stuff. Australians don't deal with it. Never have, never will. You can, people can pretend that that's the case, but it never has been. And politicians, I'm telling you, work it out. Australians are different. And Australians, actually, you talk about values, Australians do actually like to look after their mates. And it's even the mates that they don't know.
1: Well, they, they're not stupid either. A lot of us have actually had a decent education. We can see that if gas is being sold at, at, at a certain price overseas and we're, we're expensive here, then it just doesn't work. Privatisation is now a dead duck.
2: Certainly when it comes to privatising education, that is getting rid of private schools. Um, You've been listening to the Dogs Programme. We are the Defenders of Government Schools and we've been here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and you might even be listening to us on the podcast on the WWWs. If you're interested in us and what we've been talking about and the fight that we fight, because we have to, Um, you can check us out on our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next week when we'll be back, because we have to be, because those schools need defending, Um, it's bye for now. Bye for
0: now. I dreamed I saw Joy Hill Night alive as you and me, says I. But Joe, you ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I did. Says Joe, but I did. The copper bosses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I to organize, went on to organize, from San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your head. I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. I never died.